0: America's Oldies But Goodies, episode 11.
1: We knew a guy who knew a guy. Yeah. It was just that simple. He says, I can get you an audition with Lieber and Stola. We said, what, what bank do I have to stick yeah. up? Who do I have to shoot?
0: I mean, they were gigantic.
1: They were huge. Oh, yeah. The drifters and the coasters and, you know, Benny King, Clyde McFadden, um
2: Hey everyone, and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past. We're visiting the 60s with host Dick Scapatoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back then called Feeling Groovy. He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests, and pretty much everything that happened in the swinging 60s. So, Dick, who's on today's show?
0: Thanks, John. Is it Caramia Mine or Caramia Mine? I don't know. But I will ask my next guest to clarify that for us. Sandy Dean has been with Jay and the Americans since their inception back in the early 60s, and the hits never stopped coming only in America come a little bit closer Karamia uh, and this magic moment would you believe they were one of the bands that was on the bill with the Beatles when they played their first concert in the US at the Washington Coliseum in 1964 I've got a ton of questions for Sandy and I do believe we shall hear a raft load of 60s rock stories coming up here in just a minute
2: me must we say for retro and vintage merchandise you'll find some fabulous buys at dick's website americas oldies autograph records tiki mugs golf memorabilia even a paul mccartney signed album cover check it out at americas oldies but goodies.com by the way you can listen to every episode of our show there too that's americas oldies but goodies.com
0: How many J's were actually in J in the Americans? Well, obviously, at least one. But my next (laughs) guest knows the answer to that, as well as, is it? Kara Mia Mine or Kara Mia Mine. Sandy Dean goes all the way back to the Brill Building days with Lieber and Stoller and has worked with nearly every major 60s rock group, including the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I know we're going to hear some fun stories today, so let's get cooking on this. Sandy, welcome to the show. And is it Kara or Kara?
1: It's according to where you're from. Yeah. But the way the correct pronunciation being it's Italian, it would be Cara.
0: Cara. That's what I thought. Cara.
1: And you don't even say the R, which for a New Yorker is really easy.
0: Well, it's like C-A-D-A, Kada? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Kada Mia.
0: Okay, there we go. Got it. All right. Well, good to have you on board. Let's take it literally from the top, or maybe I should say from the bottom. Go all the way back to your high school days, or even farther back than that if you want.
1: We can go back to Moses. This group has been around forever. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think so. Well, if you can go back that far, do it. And let's, uh, yeah, bring us up to speed starting back uh, from the days when you were just a young man.
1: Well, it started out actually when we were kids. We we grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. And they only did two things as kids besides going to school. When you got out of school, you went and you played ball. Some kind of ball: stick ball, baseball, basketball, and, and then you'd go into the house and play music, or listen to the radio, and then later on watch television. And my sister, who was eight and a half years older than me, she was all she was a singer, a professional singer. So being older than me, and we we uh, grew up, we were very close, and in, living in an apartment. Her music was all I ever heard, and her music was Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Mel Torme, the Pied Pipers, the Four Freshmen. I mean,
2: that's
1: what she listened to. Bessie Smith, a very wide selection of very standard, uh, great music. She loved the blues, torch. They called it torch singing, you know. Yeah, she did a lot of that, and she was a Bobby Soxer. She went to the Paramount Theater, screamed for. Frank Sinatra with all the other girls.
0: She saw Frank?
1: Oh, yeah, sure.
0: Jeez.
1: Oh, yeah. That's why she was such a fan of the big bands, because Sinatra sang with the Pied Pipers and Dorsey's band. And that's where he started. And then when he went on his own, she was hooked. That's where I got my musical basis. You know, Mm -hmm. it was a baseline. It was a very wide range of music that she listened to. And it was great stuff. I mean, it's just the best kind of music. Then I had to form my own opinions. Of course, I remember te- when television started, and I was there when it started, when people had TV first in their homes. And we, we would watch Uncle Miltie, and we would watch, um, you know, different shows. Mm-hmm. And they had a show called Your Hit Parade. And then you saw those people singing, but, but the big impression that started the kids off was, you know, Elvis, Bobby Darren, and of course the Everly Brothers.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: When I saw the Everly Brothers the first time on the Ed Sullivan show, I said, wow, those guys are so good. And it's just two guitars and two guys singing. And it sounded so big. I got very impressed with that. And then the next thing we saw Elvis, and that was exciting. And then we saw. Frankie Lean had a TV show, and four kids in white sweaters with red letters on them came sliding out onto the stage and sang a song called Why Do Fools Fall in Love. That was Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. Yes. And I remember that everybody that I knew in in our neighborhood watched that show and was so taken with it that young kids our age were not only on television, but they had a hit record. And at that point, I decided, I can do that. And we started singing on the streets. We weren't the only ones. I mean, everybody got into it. You know, there was a whole bunch of kids snapping their fingers and learning to sing harmony and listening to transistor radios and trying to imitate the records that were popular. And really, that's how we learned. I mean, I had a little edge, because being the young kid that was dragged to all my sister's lessons, I learned to sing harmony and melody, and I understood the concept of it at a very early age. Yeah. So that was a big deal. It kind of gave me a head start. But when I put my first group together, first I was a solo artist. I started imitating you know, Elvis and, and the Everly Brothers with the guitar, and I started writing songs. And then I got together with my friends in the neighborhood. And we really got going, and it was fun. It was just such fun. And then I moved away.
0: Did you form a group at that time, or
1: I moved from Brooklyn to the suburbs. I was saved. I became a, a suburbanite. Okay. And I went to Far Rockaway High School, and I formed my first official group. And the official group was called the Harborites. And we got a recording contract. That was my my high school girlfriend, Sadell, was the lead singer and a guy named Kenny Rosenberg and myself and Kenny and I decided after we got our record played on the radio we didn't want to be in a girl with a girl in the group because <laughs> all of the cool records were being made by guy groups yeah and to be honest you know girls can be annoying sometimes <laughs> if you have to go into a dressing room and they need their own space. Right. Hang a curtain up. I'm not getting changed with you guys yet. And it just became, a, you know, we were kids. I didn't want to be bothered. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted to hang out with all the other guys. Yeah. <laughs> so we got rid of the girl who, by the way, was an excellent singer. And we formed a, this group with no name, but we were managed by a guy who managed a group called The Mystics. And the lead singer, or the second lead singer, because the first lead singer had left the group. They had a song called "Hushabye."
0: Hushabye, yes. Is this the group that had the hit "Hushabye"? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That
1: was the Mystics.
0: Okay. They were
1: managed by the same manager as the Harborites, a guy named Jim Gribble. He managed a whole bunch of people. Anyway, we said to Jay, "Why don't you want to come in our group? We're going to form a new group." Because we love your voice. You want to be our lead singer. And he was happy to because he wasn't happy with his situation with the Mystics. Right. And he joined us. And then I called my friend from Brooklyn that used to snap fingers with me, and Howie, and he joined the group. Eventually, that became Jane the Americans. Yeah. Simple as that. Bang. And we just rehearsed. But we, we weren't named. We just were a group. And we fought our way to get an audition, and Libra stole us off.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: And they loved us. We were the first white group, white white artists they ever handled, other than Elvis Presley, who, of course. They just wrote songs for Elvis. They didn't produce him or uh, do anything else. But we got signed by the kings of the New York scene.
0: That's amazing. How in the world did you even get in there?
1: <laughs> we knew a guy who knew a guy. Yeah. It was just that simple. Yeah. He says, I can get you an audition with Lieber and Stola. He said, what what bank do I have to stick up? Who do I have to shoot?
0: I mean, they were gigantic.
1: They were huge. Oh, yeah. The Drifters and the Coasters and, you know, Benny King, Clyde McFadder. They had the Exciters. They they wrote um, uh, Ruby Baby for Dion. Oh, yeah. They wrote songs for Peggy. I mean, they were the biggest. And they wrote and produced all these records.
0: You know what? It occurs to me, I got to tell you a quick story, because this has a little bit of a Lieber and Stoller spin on it. Uh, Back when Harper's was recording, we recorded a number of Randy Newman songs, and this was before Randy was known by anybody really, but he he was a great songwriter. And he not only wrote some really great tunes, but he arranged a number of tunes for us, and it got to a point where a lot of other groups started asking him if he would arrange songs for them, and he decided at some point that he was not going to do any more arranging at all. he had had it with all of these people, right? Even though our our producer got him signed to Warners, he just didn't have any hits at all. He, was, he kept hitting a brick wall. Goes that way. And so after a number of people had asked him to uh, arrange songs for them, he started turning them down, and I, the, all he did was finish arranging tunes for us, and that was it. He gets a call one day from Lieber and Stoller. And they say, we have a song we think you could do a really great job singing. We want you to sing the song. Mm -hmm. And would you come back to New York and we'll play it for you? And so he did, thinking that not only was he going to arrange his own song, he was going to be the singer on the song. He went back. They did the session. He sang the song, came back home to Hollywood. A couple months later, he hears the song on the radio, <laughs> only it's not him singing it. It's Peggy Lee, Is That All There Is.
1: There you go. We were would answer that, too. I were you
0: really? Well, he... It turns out that Lieber and Stoller didn't want him to sing at all. They just wanted him to do the arrangement, which was a killer arrangement. They tricked him. Yeah, yeah, they <laughs> really did. Anyway, I didn't mean to get too far afield. Let's get back to it. Tell us some more Lieber and Stoller stories.
1: Well, we had had our first big hit. First, we came out with the first record on United Artists. They signed our contract to United Artists, but they were the producers. So we did tonight. From West Side Story. Oh, yeah. And United Artists was releasing the film West Side Story. So they said, well, we're doing, Ferranti and Tysha are doing a piano version. We want a teenage version of tonight in conjunction with the release of the movie. So we did it. Of course, all the promotion went to Fronty and Teicher. And in spite of that, we sold about 60,000 copies in the tri state area. Okay. Kids loved it. Problem was, it wasn't getting pushed. So, you know, UA was a film company first and a record company second. Yeah. Then we came out, with a, we followed up with a song that Lever and Stola found that was written by uh, Ted Darrell and Greg Richards. Wrote a song, it was a country and western demo of She Cries. And they decided to let us sing it. And they changed it. We never listened to the country's version of it till later. But they sang it to us as a biome, kind of a sexy, drone kind of a beat. And that's how we recorded it. And then they played the demo of the country song. We cracked up because it was so different. And then we had this huge hit. Yeah. But after that, we released, I thought, a song that should have been a monster. And it bombed. And then we released two more singles and nothing happened with. And the group was falling on hard times. So the group split up, and Marty, who was the guitar accompanist, and became an original member with the, th- the, the, the other three Americans. So we were at this point five guys. We were sitting in Lieberstoller's office waiting for some new material. And all the good material was going to the other groups because they were hot and we were cold. And we were getting the leftovers, and we didn't like the leftovers. So Jerry and Mike said, Hey, you want to hear the Drifters' new single? We go, Yeah. So they take us into their office, and they play us a demo, or actually a finished master of Only in America, huh? with the drifters singing it. And we sit down, we all look at each other, we're dumbfounded. And it was great. First of all, it was great, a great song. And we say to them, well, why wouldn't you give us that song? Yeah, What would be more of a natural hookup? And only in America, by they the Americans. Mm-hmm. I mean, doesn't that sound like it makes sense? Sure. You know, we were very in awe of them, and we never talked back or got mad. You know what I'm saying? We just listened and watched. But we got annoyed at that one. And they said, hey, that, you know what? That's how it goes. You know, they're hot, and they're getting first choice. So we went home, and we were really miserable because we said, wow, that would have been a hit for us. And we had the new Jay to boot because the other Jay packed it in. And so Jay numbers, we're home, and the phone rings. My phone rings, and and Jerry Lieber says, you know that song, Only in America? How would you guys like to record that song? Oh, for God's sake. And we go, are you kidding? We wanted to record the minute we heard it. Well, what had happened was they submitted the master to Atlantic Records, ATCO. Well, ATCO turned around and said, hey, we're not going to have our act. Thing only in America could a guy from anywhere be president. There's no such thing as a black guy becoming president. Gee. And that's nonsense. You know, there wasn't even civil rights yet. Yeah. This was 1963, 64, you know? So, Armand Erdogan threw the, the session back in their face. Now, they had paid for that session with their own money. So, all of the strings and horns and the whole track and all of the recession money was spent So they called us, and they said, how would you like to? I said, sure. So you go into the studio, and they're playing us the Drifters track in the Drifters key, which was much too low, Russ. But we recorded the song, and then what happened was uh, when we finished it, Jerry and Mike said, well, you know, it sounds a little dull. I think we could speed it up. And so they sped the song up, and then when it went to mastering at UA, the guy in the mastering places, it sounds a little slow. It sounds dull, and he sped it up.
0: So he put it into your key ultimately.
1: Yeah, but we sounded like Alvin and the Chipmunks oh, when we played. And if you listen to the record to this very day, yeah, you can hear. There's no way that we could have sung that song that there in that key. Yeah, I mean, it just it just we crack up about it. But people loved it. They bought it. They loved it. They don't hear. Yeah, they don't listen with a technical ear; they just listen.
0: Yeah, you know, I wouldn't have even thought that.
1: Well, if you listen to the record now yeah. with new ears, you'll hear it. Yeah. It's all key higher than we would have done it. Now.
0: I got to tell you another story that, that coincidentally ties into this one, and I don't know if you guys ever did this in the studio, but I'll tell you what we used to do pretty regularly. It was called rapping, not. R-A-P.
1: No, no. You used to put a wrap, wrap of tape around the capsule. Yes,
0: right, which well, would speed it, it up. On. Okay, you did it then. All right. We did the same thing with Feeling Groovy and it took it out of our range on stage. Mm-hmm. didn't matter. I mean, no one knew right. the difference, but interesting. All right. And were you doing that on the East Coast? Probably at the same time we were doing it on the West Coast.
1: Before you, trust me. That's right. Yes. Yeah,
0: that's right. Because we were Feeling Groovy 67. Uh, when did you release that one? 63?
1: No, we, the song was written in 63. It was recorded by the Drifters. and we, we came out with that in like 63, I think.
0: Okay, all right. Well, just well, I, if we can go on for hours just with these side yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. What we should do, actually, at some point.
2: I do believe it's toe-tapping time. Let's see if we can squeeze a quick music break here. We're coming right back.
0: Let me jump here to another question. What do you consider to be among your most notable successes?
1: Well, you know, when we started out, we were kids. The only reason that we wanted to have a record on the radio, that was what we wanted to do. We wanted our record to be played on the radio, which I had with my first group. It was very exciting. And my parents and my relatives and all of my friends and kids heard it on the radio. Mm -hmm. And it made me like, you know, a big shot. I mean, I was. I was too cool to touch. Yeah. I had, they're playing my record on the radio, you know. And, and it was all about, you know, signing autographs and getting the girls. That was the main thrust of it. There was no, you know, message. We were putting a message out. We were going to change the world. We were kids. But so, well, we were kids with a, with a good musical ear for a good song. That's really what we were about. And we were good ears for for arranging and harmonies. And besides, we learned from Lieber and Stoller, and they were the best. We learned how to write a song, how to produce a record, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. how to put an orchestration together to enhance the song. I mean, they were our mentors. And everything, every success we had, whether it was with them or after them, we owe them homage for having taught us the way You know, they didn't really teach it. We just sat there and watched. Yeah, you just watched. But you learn. But the biggest success is, you know what? Having one hit, and I get annoyed when people say a one-hit wonder, because you know how hard it is to have a hit? A hit?
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh,
1: You know how hard it is to have one hit? Yeah. (laughs) Well, we had 10 top 10 hit records and 23 top 20 records and maybe 30 top 40 records, and 13 albums, and a career. Yeah, yeah, spectacular. So really a career, and that's an
0: accomplishment. Yeah, oh, major.
1: You know, because now that we were back, we didn't know it then, but, you know, like after the third hit, we looked at each other and we said, you know what, this is getting serious. <laughs> You know, I mean, we can really take this further. This is the real deal. Mm-hmm. We never thought we were going to have it. Whoever dreamt that when we released the record in 1961, that we would be singing it in 2017 to Sold Out Houses. Jeez, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's kind of amazing. when you. yo
0: think it, it is. It
2: is.
1: And, and, and a whole bunch of other songs. I mean, we do 90 minutes of our stuff. So that's an accomplishment. And like I said to the audience the other day when we mentioned, that, you know, we played with the Beatles, but we're still playing and they're not.
0: That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That so, is true.
1: You know, it, it's true. It's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's true. And we love doing it. You know, it's, it's just that's the accomplishment, surviving, getting all of those hits, because boy, it was hard. It was really hard making hit records. There was so much competition. And you needed the record companies to believe in you. Because if they didn't, even if you had a record contract, if they didn't put money into the promotion...
0: That was it. I mean,
1: if UA had put the money into the promotion of us, that capital put into the Beach Boys,
0: you
1: know, we would be in another stratosphere.
0: Sure, of course. We
1: we did it in spite of them instead of because of them. I mean, that's how it goes.
0: You mentioned the Beatles. Did you open for them at some point? show?
1: Well, we didn't close, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, we opened for them at the Washington Coliseum. Oh, yeah. In February um, 60 I want to say 64, maybe 65. I'm not. You know, I'm fuzzy with you. There were so many of them. <laughs> but we did their first show in the States on their first go-round. They went from that show on by train to do Ed Sullivan the next day.
0: I just wonder if you have ever been able to track down, I know there's footage of them at the Washington show. Uh, Do you suppose the whole show exists somewhere on... I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. Because there was really not videotape in those days. I guess that was film, apparently. yeah.
1: We got a great response to them, but boy, I want to tell you something. The promotion that went into those kids, they were bewildered by it, you know? The response to, to just denouncing... Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, the (laughs) scream, and they hadn't even done anything yet.
0: Yeah, I know. They
1: had just come to the country, you know. But what happened was they showed all these newsreels of the kids fainting in Europe when they when They came from Germany to London, and girls were fainting, and and half of those girls were paid, and half of the girls were real. But it didn't matter. It was shown on uh, network television as news and you know kids like to mimic other kids and i'm not believe me those guys were brilliant songwriters yeah and they, they were, were terrific
0: sure yeah
1: musicians yeah. and they were with the right people i mean their producer was just brilliant but the whole way that it was presented and the timing of them with this country being in mourning with our president having been assassinated yes. i mean the country could not have been at a lower point And these kids were a breath of fresh air. Yeah, they They sure were. They were the first thing to put a smile on everybody's face.
0: Yep, absolutely. And I remember seeing them when they played the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Yeah. They could have turned all the lights off in the Cow Palace, the entire place flash. was illuminated by flashes, flash yeah. bulbs that yeah. never stopped. It went for the yep. whole show. They and never, the stopped. never and stopped. stopped, and the screaming never stopped. Yeah, never. Yeah.
1: They never heard a thing that they did. Yeah, I know. I'm amazed that they were as good as they were. They couldn't hear a thing, and there were no monitors.
0: Yeah, no monitor speakers. Sure, that's right.
1: I mean, the none. You know, they were worthless. Whatever they were.
0: We're talking about memorable. People, and I, you mentioned the, the Beatles. Tell me some other people that you worked with that uh, are memorable.
1: Well, we worked with the Stones in New York. Okay. On their first go-round when Brian Jones was in the group. You know who uh, Sid Bernstein is?
0: Yes, right.
1: All right, well, Sid was, I think, if Sid promoted the show. It was us and uh, the Stones. Okay. What happened was he comes into our dressing room. It was a big common dressing room. You know, like a big green room, but everybody was hanging out in it. Sure. And Sid says, listen, you got to do me a favor, guys. I said, what's that? He said, well, you're going to have to close the show because the Stones have a TV appearance. And it's only at, you know, five o'clock. And that, that would be after they'd be on stage. So you're going to have to open and you're going to have to close.
0: <laughs> okay. All right.
1: And I said, oh, that, that, thanks, Sid. That's going to work out great. And the lines were around the block, and kids were screaming just from shadows walking past the Venetian blinds in the windows. You know, policemen on mounted police and barriers. And, and they sure were not screaming for us that no way. So, so the stones go on, and they, they're screaming and yelling and carrying on. And then they finish their set, and they throw their guitars to the roadies and run out of the place into a limo with the entire audience chasing them Down 7th Avenue. (laughs) Now the whole place is emptied out and we go on. Ah! And we're playing for the cleanup crew. And
2: boy, they loved us. We got
1: a standing ovation for the cleanup
0: crew. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Classic story.
1: That
2: showbiz. Let's just take a moment for a brief musical interlude. We'll be coming back shortly, so stick around.
1: That once blow my face with gone but it's not that way I wasn't going to lose you. I want you I want you I want you
0: so Speaking of which we're talking about all of the various successes that you've had. Most of us know that life's not all a bed of roses. If you have one, give us your best failure story, either personally or with the band. Well, I
1: can give you a couple. One, of course, is when I was voted, when the group was, I had to make a speech when we were honored in the Vogue Group Hall of Fame. Okay. For inducted, so I thanked my ex-wife for divorcing me.
0: (laughs) Oh, Okay, now,
1: I don't know how would you look at that as a failure or not a failure.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. The second one, I mean, it was personal. After the group, uh, I became an A and R director and a record producer because I produced a lot of the records for our group. And so uh, afterwards, I was sent by two pretty well-known a management company, uh, Lieber and Krebs. Krebs. They produced a lot of hit acts. But let me tell you the story. Yeah. So they get a hold of me and say, listen, we want you to go to Boston to check out an act for us. See if we should, you know, sign them up to a management deal. And then, you know, maybe you want to produce them. So we'll get them a record deal. So I go to Boston to a club and a group comes on and I listen. And they're pretty good, but I looked at it and I said, you know what? I went back to the guys who sent me Steve Lieber and Dave I said yeah they're a pretty good uh, rock band but in fact the guy's a poor man imitation of Mick Jagger oh. he's doing Mick Jagger so uh, I passed and Lieber and Stoller signed them anyway their name was Aerosmith
0: oh jeez
1: so that's that's a failure uh, yeah, I don't think that was a, yeah. a boo boo
0: amazing
1: I didn't see that one coming but they weren't singing Toys in the Attic on stage either so you
0: know? Right. That's amazing. Now, that would have been, what are we talking? That's 20, Not maybe not 20 years ago.
1: Oh, more. More yeah, than was that? was, what, 60, I was in the six, late 60s, maybe 70, something like that.
0: Okay. All right. Got it.
1: Listen, everybody that's in the music business, if you say no, 90% of the time or more, you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just hard to find that, that, uh, listen, we were right about a couple of guys that we started in the business. Two guys walked into our production office when I was doing the production of the group. They sang some songs for us and we got all excited and we hired them to, because they had no money and they just graduated college. So we hired them to be our bass player and keyboard player. For, uh, they played with us in that capacity for almost three and a half, four years. And then they went out, these stupid guys actually quit our group, went out on their own, and formed their own band called Steely Dan.
0: <laughs> oh, boy.
1: So we were right about that one. We tried to get them off the ground, and everybody passed.
0: Yeah, amazing.
1: So you never know.
0: No, you never know. That is so true.
1: Well, we knew Donald and Walter were brilliant. We knew that. Yeah. Immediately, yeah.
0: I know that when we were working with most of our sessions were done by uh, the wrecking crew, and a lot of the the people associated with them or around them ultimately went on uh, to be big to you know to do their own own thing. So
1: sure, well, we were trying to promote them. We cut records, we cut demos with them with their yeah. songs, mm-hmm. and the biggest be the Aristapé. I mean. Everybody, we got in to see everybody. Because so we were red hot. So everybody wanted to talk to us. Sure. And we would play these demos of these songs with these guys singing and playing. And it was very Steely Dan, but it was just too soon, you know? Yeah. And then three years later, we gave them, we, we couldn't do any more with them, and we released them. Gave them to one of our best friends, a guy named Gary Katz. He went out to California with them mm-hmm. and produced seven of the greatest albums in rock and roll Gee. history. Yeah with
0: them. You know, I need to ask you, because I can't remember if we talked about this or not, did you ever reach a point, let's call it somewhere in the 60s, maybe even in the 70s, when things slowed down so much that you thought about not continuing in music?
1: (laughs) You know what, anybody in the arts that doesn't think that this is their last gig, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't care if you're a movie star or a ballet dancer or a Broadway theater guy. Everybody's insecure about that. And if you don't have, if you're not like the Beatles where you have hit after hit after hit or the Eagles that have hit after hit after hit, you know, there are always lows. I mean, we had big lows and we had lead singer changes. You know, we, I mean, after she cried, we got insecure because we didn't come up with another hit. He left. We figured, oh, boy. We found in Second J. We went up back to Lieber and Stola. They said, we don't know what to do with this guy. He's <laughs> totally different from the other guy. You know, they don't write songs. They don't write songs like Garamir. You know, they don't write songs for a big, powerful voice like Jay Black. And Jay was not a bluesy kind of guy. It wasn't like he was Elvis. So they didn't know what to do with him. We were lucky that we found Only in America. That was his first hit.
0: And this is Jay number two.
1: That's a number two. Yeah. We ran off ten hits, but they weren't one after another. We had big lulls. I mean, between we had a huge run of only in America, come a little bit closer. Let's lock the door and throw away the key. We had like five in a row. Mm-hmm. Caramia, some enchanted, I mean, they just kept coming. And then it stopped. And that's when, you know, but, but by that point, we had enough of a catalog where we we were at least working. And our manager was smart enough to say, you guys are clean enough to go into where all of the big folk groups have played in the colleges because they resisted rock and roll until we went out there and broke that door down. You know, it was like the Kingston Trio of rock, where did you say in the Americans, you know? So we did eight years of college concerts, which kept us going without hits. But we had already had six hits. That was the blessing. But then we started doing our own production finally got to that point. Okay. And I produced two albums called Sands of Time and Wax Museum with the group. I mean, we all put our heads together and we would pick songs, but we picked songs. Nobody was writing great songs for us. All the good songs were going to the hot acts again. So we came up with an an idea. Listen, if they're not going to write great songs for us, why don't we do great songs that were already hits that we wished we had recorded and rearrange them like us? and put it together. Now, nobody knew what a rock revival album was then. That that word was never used. And we did, the first one was Sands of Time, and on that record were a whole bunch of hits that we wished we had done, and one of them was This Magic Moment.
0: Yeah, Uh, monster record, yeah. And
1: we came blasting back onto the charts. And then the next album was called Wax Museum, and that one had Walking in the Rain on it. So we started the Rock, you know, the Rock Revival, but of course nobody would ever give us credit for
0: it. <laughs>
1: you know, but yeah. like the Rodney Dangerfield of Rock and Roll. <laughs>
0: right, yeah. You know, uh, we're talk- I think you're probably a couple years older than me, but for listeners in. How dare you! Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was born in 45, you were born in... 41. Okay, there we go. Uh, We both can remember back in the day when we were as fit as a fiddle. Now, as aging baby boomers, we probably no longer look much like Jack LaLanne, but if you're (laughs) up for talking about it, how's your health nowadays?
1: I play beach volleyball when I get to talk, when I'm not working. Yeah. Yeah. That's a two-man game. It's pretty aggressive.
0: Sure, I used to play um, it in Santa Cruz.
1: Yeah, so you know what what beach volleyball yeah. to oh, yeah. is? Oh, yeah,
0: two-man, yeah, sure, absolutely, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and like I say, my wife and I just finished doing the boardwalk a couple of Actually, it's 4.4 4 miles long, so we did it 8.4 miles. Wow. On a bike, in the wind, a little windy. And, um, I mean, uh, other than the diabetes, too... Uh, I'm pretty much the same as I always was.
0: Uh, Are you doing anything in particular for that? Because I I have it as well. It hasn't been a problem for me, but it, I believe, is just beginning to be after probably 20 years.
1: Yeah, I got it handled pretty well. I mean, you know, listen, when I don't eat right, uh, my blood sugar goes too high. I do take insulin once a day. You know, it's a 24-hour shot. I just started doing that, I think, last year. So and I've had it for ten years, so you know, it's a progressive disease. Yeah. It's not gonna get better. Right. Yeah. And I'm not the kind that I could be so disciplined. Oh god. <laughs> you know, that I can I mean you can beat the disease yeah. if you're incredibly disciplined and do everything right and starve yourself and be a vegetarian. I mean, I'm not gonna do you know what? I'm seventy six. I'm really happy I'm not going to make the rest of my life a misery. One of the things that I enjoy is eating these, you know, fun food. I mean, I don't abuse it. I don't sit there and eat sugar all day long. You know, but I'm going to have a hero sandwich, or I'm going to have some fun. Of course. You know, I mean, I can't do it. There are some people that can. I can't.
0: Well, and I think you, you put your finger on it, uh, you know, when you said it is probably possible given that you did everything exactly right, that you could either keep it at bay or maybe send it the other way.
1: The but other way, Who's
0: going gonna to do that? I mean, I'm not doing that either. So
1: My wife could do that. Really? She's the most disciplined person I've ever met in my life. And you know what? I mean, she's just amazing. I can't do that. She says, but I want you. I said, look, I got 24 more years you got to deal with me. I'm going to eat what I want to eat. Leave me alone.
0: <laughs> you know, I've said somewhere along the line cuz I've I've quit smoking more than a few times. I'm now off at about a year and a half, which is good and I hope to stay off. But I've somewhere along the line I said when I get old enough, maybe late 80s, I'm going to start again only because I love it so much and I probably won't have that much time left anyway. So who knows. Yeah,
1: well, I didn't I don't smoke. I used to love. I was the mall. they called me the Marlboro man. Really? You know, yeah, I smoked incessantly. Yeah, when we were in the studio and sure. we were making records and you know, but I quit over thirty-five years ago, and I don't find I need it anymore. That's
0: great. That's great that you yeah. weren't tempted back. I was tempted back several times, and,
1: and well, I you know I went back one time, and but I actually you, you know what, I really don't like it. You know, it's it, once you're off it that long. Yeah. Now when I smell a cigarette, I go. Whoa.
0: Yeah, well, and probably when you go in some of the clubs, uh, for example, you go in clubs and casinos. Yeah, it just reeks in there. Um, Have your musical taste changed since the 60s, and what kind of music do you listen to now?
1: There's only two kinds of music, good and bad. Right. Okay, that's how I break it down. There has always been good and bad. Through every generation, there has been good and bad. Mm -hmm. Only now, because of the uh, addition of, of social media and the outlets where anybody with a computer can sing and play and upload onto YouTube, there's more bad music than ever. Yeah. But there's also a lot more good music than ever. There's just more music out there. I'm still pretty much the same taste. Um, I always had a wide range of taste. There's a couple of groups out now that floor me that I think are fabulous. Uh, I love the Chainsmokers, this new group. I love this Panic! at the Disco. Is a really cool singer. Of course, I still go to Steely Dan. I listen to whatever they do, new or old. Ed Sheeran is brilliant.
0: You know, I've seen him a couple times, but I've never listened to his stuff.
1: He is brilliant. Really? Okay. This guy is a storyteller and a brilliant musician.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, listen, you know what? I just look at certain people, and even if it's not my particular taste, they're so talented musically yeah. that they catch your around. I mean, listen, I watched that country award, that country tribute to the Bee Gees, and I saw, I mean, I always liked him. The one that's Matt, he, he's, uh, he's one of the judges on one of his shows. Keith Urban. Keith Urban is one of the best guitar player, singers I've ever seen. And I saw, I mean, you know, we worked with everybody. We also, there was a guy named Jimmy James when we toured with Little Richard. Okay. Who changed his name to Jimi Hendrix. So I saw him play guitar. I'm telling you, some of these guys are that good now. They're that they're just they're just so good. So there's a lot of good stuff out, there, a lot of good people out there. And there's no reason for people to say, "Oh, this," you know, the new music stinks. You listen to Ed Sheeran talk, He tells you he he's he's like telling his life. He's like a troubadour. He's fantastic.
0: Well, that's great because lyrics. Uh, seem to have disappeared for
2: quite not a while. Not with this
1: guy. And and not with Taylor Swift. I mean, there are people out there that tell some great stories. So, you know, that, that's. I mean, I listen to a lot of different things. Like I said, there's two kinds of music.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you on that. I've never heard it put that way, but that makes total sense.
1: You know, I grew up in New York, and I was lucky because in New York City... Back in the day, when I was a kid, because I'm a little older than you, there was only AM radio. But if you flipped the dial, you would get a blues station, a jazz station, a Latin station, a country station, a rock station. I mean, you know, symphonies, they were all on the dial. And we could turn the dial and listen to 10 different styles of music. And we did and that's, that's why Jay and the Americans, when we made records with Libra and Stola, we had that Latin, three Latin percussion guys playing on come a little bit closer you know and on, you know we have that feel to our band because of the exposure.
0: You know, I, I'm trying to think here. We were in San Francisco. KYA was the big rocker at the time. Uh, and I'm trying to think of what else there was. We did not have that spread that you just mentioned. It wasn't available here.
1: Very few places had that spread. That's what I'm talking. So the guys that came from the East Coast, you know, even Philly and and even Boston, they had, you know, we had some stations that traveled far. Chicago had some stations that traveled far. We used to get KLS, I think it was. There was 60,000 watts. I mean, those stations traveled halfway across the country. You know, but we had 20 stations. So we were very fortunate if, if you were the kind of kid that just didn't stick to one thing, that liked to experiment. We got exposed.
0: That may have been one reason why that whole clump of of geography back there Mm -hmm. was so loaded with um, talent and music. Absolutely, because of the exposure. Absolutely, because we didn't have that.
1: You know, they were playing black state. There was it was called sepia music before. Yeah, then it was called soul. Okay. Then it was called R&B.
0: Yes. Right. You
1: know, but we were exposed to that. And we were exposed to salsa and Latin. You know, there were the Fania All-Stars there. I mean, we had Willie Rodriguez and Willie Bopo played on our dates. We had some pretty famous Latin guys that are in the Latin Hall of Fame. We didn't know that then. We found out later who they became, you know. But they were playing on our sessions. And Lieber and Stolen knew who they were. We didn't. But we were exposed to this music. It was very natural for us to stick that stuff in. I think that's why all of our records were so different. We just didn't do one kind of record. We had ballads. We had fast records. We had Latin-style records. We had bubblegum records. We, we did everything. We didn't lock ourselves into one thing. And I think it's because all of us, from me, from Howie, Kenny, you know, all the Jays, we all grew up here and heard all this stuff. So it wasn't foreign.
0: That's an important point to make because there's a lot of people. Well, there's millions of people across the country who are clueless when it comes to that hotbed, that pocket of what was going on in that geographic area at that time. And I, like I say, I didn't, I didn't get into it at all. I was listening to rock and roll and a little bit of easy listening, maybe. Mm-hmm. That was about it. Let me shift for a second. What's been your most challenging experience, regardless of whether you achieved it?
1: The first challenge was when you're a kid and you're listening to the radio, you want to have you hear your record played on the radio. Of
0: course, yes.
1: We all did. You know, we all wanted to hear our record played on the radio. And why? Why? so that we could show off for our parents and our family. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so that we could get the girls to swoon. Yes. That's what it was about. We were innocent kids. There were a hundred groups on the street corner. Why us? Because we had the pardon the expression, we had the balls to storm into Lieber and Solar.
0: Yeah, well, the intent.
1: Nothing was going to stop us. We were going to do it.
0: I understand that because that was the way it was for us, too. There was no wall that we couldn't knock down. It really yeah. wasn't a matter uh, of being rejected by anybody. All of us have been rejected four zillion times.
1: We had the nerve to go for the top guys. Most people were scared to death to go to that office. We couldn't wait to sing for those guys.
0: What do you see as some of the biggest differences between the 60s and now? Anything jump out?
1: Just the fact that, like I said, that anybody with a mic and a computer can put up a piece of music and get exposure, regardless of their talent level. The fact that there's very little groundswell. I mean, in the 60s, you know, you went out, you played clubs, you got a following. You cut a demo and you prayed that when you sent the demo in, somebody listened and you get a record deal. Today, the only platform other than YouTube exposure is TV because there's very little place for exposure on the radio. There's very little radio left. It's all dot-com radio. Not much radio left. So unless you're on American Idol or The Voice, that's the main, the instant way to, to, to get it done. So that's changed a lot.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: You know, TV is the exposure medium now. Which you only got on TV before if you were already a major star.
0: And uh, interestingly, people have asked me, as I'm sure they've asked you many times, uh, my my uh, son-in-law's daughter uh, wants to get into music. Where does he start? Where does she start? Right. (laughs) Go
1: on YouTube, you know, because that's the that's where you're going to get exposure. Yeah. If you get a million hits, somebody will pay attention and sign you.
0: And it used to be.
1: And it's because no, it's because these kids now. I mean, they don't even take a pencil and pay it to school anymore. Yeah. They all have laptops, and it's all social media. They're all with their thumbs texting. Nobody talks.
0: Everybody's looking down all the time.
1: <laughs> and their thumbs are going, and that's how people now recognize talent, with their thumbs. If you're not on the iPhone or the iPad, you know, or on TV... You're not going to
0: be seen. You're not there. And it used to be when you and I were coming up, there was something of a vague roadmap. You knew you started here. You auditioned for this guy. You moved here. You followed some general pattern on an upward course.
1: Now they have their course. You know, they go on to the people that know how to handle social media. I mean, I see these kids, even some of the kids that go on Idol. They already have a million followers before they go on the show.
0: Yeah, that's astounding.
1: To compete against other kids, they have a million followers. I mean, listen, we've got some major stars that started that way. I mean, Justin Bieber was the perfect example of the new roadmap to stardom.
0: That's an interesting comparison, actually, the new roadmap, because it does exist, just not the way we used to do it. So,
1: Well, listen... We're three generations. We're in our 70s. We're four generations down the line. You know, they they found new ways to attract the interest.
0: Let me tail it off by saying, what are you doing nowadays and what are your plans for the future?
1: Well, like I said, I'm 76. I got 24 more years
0: of touring. Right.
1: (laughs) And then I'm retiring.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: We all have a vigorous... we, We tour a lot. We play... We work a lot. We do forty to sixty jobs a year. Really?
0: Oh, you're working a lot. Like that's like when you used to work.
1: That's more than we ever worked. Yeah, and you know what? We're loving it more now than we ever did.
0: Oh, that's great. That is terrific. Because
1: now we're doing it because we love to do it. Nobody's telling us what to do. We're in charge. There's no record company telling you you got to do this, you got to sing that. There's no man. I mean, our manager. My manager. He does pretty much what we want to do is that mitchell mitchell's our agent that's tci he's our agent
0: i have to send him a note and thank him he's turned me on to you who else did i do this week bill cunningham of the box tops who else did i do tom garrett of the classics four i've done three of these things just this week through him because he turned me on to him so
1: well be nice to tom garrett because i hate him I always tell him I hate it. It's a running joke. Yep. Every time I say, I say, how about the Classics for? Well, by the way, I hate Tom Garrett. No, You know,
0: it's a joke. Hang on. Now, let me see if I can find it. Let me get my Tom Garrett file. I want to see. I wrote something down, and let me <laughs> read to you what I wrote. Tell Sandy Dean that Tom Garrett doesn't like him, and it's something about a one-word title story. I didn't quite get that, but
1: yeah. So you both you guys are on the same wavelength. So yeah. Well, I have a running joke. We were, we did a cruise, and he was the MC. Okay. Thing. And I said, "Boy, you know, Jay was saying, how about the classics?" And Tom Garrett and I said I hate that guy, and the audience cracked up. <laughs> so it became a running joke. Yeah, you know?
0: Right? Yeah, yeah. And
1: we said, you know, everything about him is one word and one title. Right.
0: One title. Snoopy, that's
1: right. Snoopy. You know, uh, what are all of their hits? I said, the name of their hits. there. Stormy,
0: <laughs> right? Tracy. Yeah.
1: Right. I said Snoozy, <laughs> uh, yeah. Doc, Soapy, You know, the, I said, you know, they. Uh, we were ragging on him. You know, and it went on for the whole cruise, eight days. But, you know, he's a really nice
0: man. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I've had a most enjoyable time doing this interview with you, and hopefully we'll have a chance to uh, talk again in the future. So, until we do talk again, you take it easy, Sandy.
1: Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye.
0: As Chris mentioned earlier in the show, you need to visit my website, com, and not only take a listen to the archive of all of our shows, but to check out all the retro and vintage merchandise available there. For example, we've got a Don McLean American Pie Framed gold record, Uh, and this one caught my eye when I first saw it, a Dodge Challenger 1970 car front wall shelf. That's right. It's a shelf that you hang on the wall that looks exactly like the front of a Dodge Challenger. It's about 7 inches deep and 20 inches wide. I've never seen anything like it. There's also uh, all kinds of restaurant-quality tiki mugs in various shapes and sizes. So much of the stuff that we remember from the 60s, you'll find it all at AmericasOldiesButGoodies.com. You can also email me with your suggestions on what guest you'd like me to have on the show. I'd love hearing from you with any ideas that you've got. So until next week, keep your face in a smile. It makes
2: everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at America's Oldies But Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The swinging sixties. I'm John Berg. See you then.